The old adage from Bill Clinton's campaign, it's the economy, stupid, has never been more appropriate. Well, if you look at what Mr. Trump is saying, he's saying those words. It's the economy, stupid. This week, the race for the White House. And it's the economy, stupid. We look at the policies that could shape the next four years in the United States. Good morning, dear listeners, and welcome to Is the Economy Stupid? I'm Damien, and today I'm joined by the young blood. It's Joe. Hey, everybody. How are you? What's up, Joe? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good, Damien. Yeah, that's awesome. Last time we talked, it was Gianluca and, and, and myself, we talked to Gabriela Hertig. Uh, that was the episode on the TRIPS waivers and more generally the pharma, pharmaceutical industry and their business model. Uh, awesome episode, don't you agree, Joe? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. I've heard it about five times now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't because I was there, but but it was it was still it was still awesome to interview her. She was so insightful. Uh, for anyone who hasn't listened to it yet, just go check it out. It was published two weeks ago. Again, as I said, great episode. And if you don't want to miss episodes like the, like that one, next the next time around, just don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. Be it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, you just subscribe there. And if you follow us on Instagram, uh, Rethinking Economics Bocconi, you will not have a problem because we always promote our episodes there. So you'll, you'll always be informed when they come up. I started this episode with Good Morning, dear listeners, which uh, should be rather exceptional. That's because for us, Joe and I, right now, it's, it's really the morning. It's early. Um, this is not uh, you, the u- usual time for our recording, which also explains that it's only the two of us. But let's bring some power into it, right? Uh, maybe, Joe, you saw that a country just opened up their borders um, for tourists. And that the special part of it is that they opened up their border for the first time in two years. Do you have any idea which country I'm talking about? I do not, Damien. It's Australia. Australia just on 21st of February just uh, opened this border for everyone to go. So I just, I thought, hey, why did why wouldn't I take Joe on a travel? He deserves it. It's early in the morning. Maybe he wants to, to go on the beach, relax. So let's go to Australia, right? I do need a vacation, Damien. Yeah, that makes sense, right? So <laughs> let's go together. And what I'm going to talk about today to you is definitely my favorite part of Australia. And I'm talking about Australian politics. That's right. My favorite part of Australia is their <laughs> political system. Um, but maybe instead of taking you to today, let me take you a bit back back in time, like back in the, back to the future style. I'm taking you to 2007. Do you have any idea what happened in Australia in 2007? No, but I'm sure you'll enlighten me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, a man called Kevin Rudd was just elected prime minister of Australia in a landslide victory after that, after the Howard government, the previous government had been in place for 11 years. Kevin Rudd, together with his, with his colleague, Julia Gilliard, they were the up and coming young duo appreciated by critics and by the public alike. Um, they were from the Labour Party. And what you have to know about Australia is that it really is a two party system. So you have Labour on one side that represents a type of centre-left political side, and you have 
the liberals, which historically represented more of a center-right type of politics. Now, the liberals are always in a coalition with the nationals that are more far-right, but the nationals can't do anything. They're always in the coalition with the liberals, so it really is a two-party system. And so Kevin Rudd and uh, Julia Gillard, they took over prime ministership as a Labour Party from the liberals, which are uh, the right, right, the right wing party. And Kevin Rudd in 2007, he comes in in a pretty difficult time because next thing that happens is the financial crisis, right? Right, and that costed a lot of politicians their uh, their position. But not Kevin Rudd. He did it so well. Australians loved him. He got more appraisal. Everyone was like, Kevin Rudd, this dude is awesome. And so the next election in 2010 should be no problem, right? He does sound like an awesome dude. Yeah, he does sound like an awesome <laughs> dude. But suddenly he loses a lot of, uh, of support by the public, by the critics. And now I have to talk to you even more about Australian politics and the reason why I love it so much. And it is that you don't, similarly a bit to what we have in Italy, what they have in Germany as well, you don't really elect the prime minister, but you elect uh, your local minister. And the local ministers together, they form the coalition, and they can then choose who is going to be prime minister. But what is different there that we don't really have here is that if the majority of the coalition, so let's say if you're in a labor government parliament and senate, if this majority of the ministers, they decide that um, the prime minister is not good anymore, they can just remove him whenever they want. And 2010, that's exactly what happened. They're like, Kevin Rudd, this guy, he's losing appraisal by the public. Let's just kick him out and let's get Sarah Gillard, uh, Julia Gillard, sorry, excuse me, his number two in the prime minister position. So this guy didn't even last a full term. He just he just lost his, uh, he, although he was the biggest appraised guy ever, like for forever uh, when he got in, he didn't last a full term, he, did, he just already got out. Gillard wins on 24th of, 24th of June, and the next election comes 21st of August, so right after it. She wins that election, although with less a margin than they had done three years before, but she wins it. Now the question is, why did people suddenly like hate Kevin Rudd while well, they loved him before? Yeah, it uh, doesn't make that much sense. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, there's a variety of reasons, but a big reason as Australian politics back then was the so-called Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, CPRS. That was a cap-and-trade emission scheme, so for a type of uh, payment you would pay on your CO2 emissions and other green greenhouse gases, although at the time it was mainly CO2. And he really wanted to make this pass. He represented the rather left-wing part of the side of the Labour Party, so he was really interested in getting a getting a, an emission trading system that you would, you would have to kind of pay if you would emit too much. But the public didn't support it. There was a lot of criticism of it. And what was actually almost crazy is his opposition, i.e. the Liberal Party, they, had, they supported it. But already in the opposition, the leader of the opposition, Malcolm Turnbull, he was removed. He lost his post as the leader of the opposition to the more right-wing Tony Abbott because the public hated it so much. They hated it so much that they first changed the leader of the opposition and then even the prime minister. Then 
let's go on a few years, 2012, so two years later, and something crazy happened. Julia Gillard, the more right-wing representative that's now prime minister for the Labour Party, she implements the CPM, the carbon pricing mechanism. That's a carbon tax in the first one in Australia. So it's actually even more left-wing than what, what Rudd tried to push before. Within two years, it had led to 7% reduction in emissions in Australia. So pretty much, that's quite a good, uh, uh, a good uh, result. Yeah. But in the meantime, in 2013, Kevin Rudd had lost the election to Tony Abbott, the leader of the opposition. And Tony Abbott removed the CPM after just two years uh, in office. And now, if you were careful, you might have realized that I said Kevin Rudd yeah. lost the election. Yeah. Do you know why? I have no clue why. Why is it Kevin Rudd again? Because Kevin Rudd, just before the election, just like three years before Gillard had into him, he took back the office. With, okay. From the, the, the labor, they were like, yeah, I remember what he did three years ago. That was stupid. Let's just get this, back, this guy back <laughs> in. <laughs> and they just brought him back and then he lost the election so it didn't really it didn't really matter but she had done she had very bad polling results and they tried to do the same as they had done three years before like get someone else in there maybe yeah. like they will get they will get some support it didn't work but it was worth a try <laughs> uh, and now maybe you've kind of guessed what is going to be today's subject but because i love australian politics so much i just can't stop giving you a small oversight of what happened afterwards and i'd love to hear it <laughs> so we got tony abbott who got Julia into return. Like, yeah <laughs> <laughs> we got tony abbott who got into prime ministership and who kind of was known as the leader of opposition because he was kind of a crazy guy he was like anti-everything that's uh progressive so he was anti-same-sex marriage he was anti-climate change he was he was really, you know, really a bit of a hard conservative, which the liberals liked when he was leader of the opposition. And if you were, for example, once joined a protest against the prime minister, Julia Gillard, and called her a witch, like they <laughs> did in the Middle Ages. But now that he was in, uh, in office as a prime minister, they were kind of ashamed of him because he was, he was quite a piece. And so just two years after he joins the, the office, they switch him again. They do the same as the as the Labour did, and they bring back Malcolm Turnbull, which was the leader of the opposition that had been ousted by Tony Abbott because of the support for the carbon pricing mechanism. But of course, you know Malcolm Turnbull, he's a nice guy. He didn't want to leave this nice record of all the prime ministers being ousted after winning an election untouched, right? <laughs> so in 2018, he too was changed for Scott Morrison. Because, again, by an internal election within his own party uh, in, the in the government. And Scott Morrison, since then, he's been in office. And while Malcolm Turnbull had been himself trying to get an emission trading system that would reduce carbon emissions, not as hard as Kevin Rudd's, but his own now, since then, Scott Morrison, since he's been in office, he's been known to resist any implementation of any climate change action, which is... Notable because Australia is by capita the biggest carbon emission in the world. So here we are with uh, our nice description of Australian politics, but uh, maybe we want to get to the I want to know. So let's hear it, Django. Subjects you should have been taught in school. 
Mm, good jingle, awesome. So, did you get what my uh, what my uh, I want to know will be today? I'm thinking it's something to do with climate change policies. Yes, it is. <laughs> do you want? Do you know ex a bit more? Like, can you really guess what about it? Carbon taxes. Yeah, you get it. Carbon taxes. <laughs> Let's talk about what are carbon taxes. Okay. Um, carbon taxes is a price on CO2 emission, but potentially also greenhouse gases, so it depends on how it is implemented. Usually they are regressive. This means that since the, the prices is put per emission, so per production, it's going to affect poorer households more because the lower your income is, the, the likelier it is that you spend a big share of your income on carbon-heavy products. So it's going to be paid more by by poor population than by rich population. Then you have a lot of variety of how to implement the carbon tax. You can, for example, get your carbon tax only for producers after a certain amount, right? So you want to protect small small industries. So you say only after you've produced 250,000 tons of carbon, you have to pay a tax on all these tons of carbon that you've produced. Mm -hmm. And then usually it is a price per ton. So it means I can put, for example, a price, you say you pay 50 euros a tax for every ton of carbon you produce. But of course, you could also just put the carbon tax on all tax production equivalent. Now, we've talked about how, how this tax affects poor people the most. In an interview with Guy Standing, we did at the very beginning of this podcast, he mentioned that the carbon tax could be used and then redistributed as universal basic income. So this would be the idea of, you know, get a, uh, a reinvestment in the households and that have it then regressive as well. But then this will be advantages to low income households because it's going to represent a bigger part of their income. And that would that would kind of equivalently be fair to every, everyone. So that that is a really good solution. What Australia did in the two years they had a carbon tax was also interesting. So they just increased the income tax threshold, meaning that a large part of the incomes of their carbon tax was going really to the poorest community because that's the one that had the lowest income tax. They increased welfare and, and pension payments. So again, a really good use. And they used a certain amount to support some of the economies that were Uh, affected by the carbon tax. I'll come back on the point later to see what this actually means. But we've talked as well about the cap and trade schemes. So cap and trade schemes, that's the one that Kevin Redd, for example, implemented. Um, this is a system where you, em, emitters of CO2, so the producers, are required to get a permit to do so uh, by the government if they emit any CO2. And now if they don't emit these CO2, these CO2 emissions, They can trade it, that's why it's a cap and trade, to companies that are behaving badly. So they are that are producing more CO2 than they actually have the mm -hmm. permit for. Mm -hmm. In the EU, we have such a system since 2005. Do you know how it works at all? I do not, Damien. Again. <laughs> I get it, don't worry. So it started out in a, in a very EU system where each member state was allowed to get a certain amount of permits and just give it to some companies. Uh, and then these companies were then allowed to trade within them. But that, that system was really criticized because then 
what happened is the prices of electricity and, and energy in general went up, yeah. but all the profits just went to the companies that were producing less, right? So yeah. it was really, it was what is called a windfall product profit. So it was more profit for some companies at the cost of consumers without really reducing the emissions that much. What happened since then is the system has been changed. The idea originally was to get all these permit auctioned. So that means that the government or the central government, the EU, not just by member state, but just the central government, would auction these permits off. The biggest uh, payer would, would pay for them. And if you get this, then you can reinvest all this money. And what the EU does very well is that more than 70% of its revenue from these uh, cap and trade permits goes back into climate change action. Mm -hmm. So it actually directly goes back to the combat that it's supposed to to lead. However, the the idea was to by 2020 have all auctioned off. This is not the case. By 2013, they were like, well, let's say 2027, because it's a bit short. In 2021, it's actually only 57% of all these permits that are auctioned off, which is still still a nice Why is that, David? Why is that? Because it's all politics. It's protection of certain industries for the international competition and uh, send uh, the certain governments that don't want to take a too harsh stance against their own industries in the EU and of course lobbying by these industries that yeah. you know don't want <laughs> don't want to pay more money so again we are at 57 percent and what's a bit i would say disappointing although again 57 percent is not bad don't get me wrong but is that the eu now has decided that they would not seek a higher percentage in the future. So they kind of abandoned the idea of going to 100% auctioning or even to 90%, they just say 57, that's okay. But here we then come to a question that I think is, at least in my opinion, it's kind of automatic. It's what's better, a carbon tax or a cap and trade system? And what is interesting here is that Australia, after their carbon tax was a Juliet government, which they implemented because they had read multiple articles saying that a carbon tax is better than a cap and trade system. They planned of still going back to a cap and trade system. So they must have said, look, this carbon tax, it doesn't work. In theory, it is also very difficult to assess because both sides have different supporters basing using different arguments. Didn't the carbon but, tax though did uh, decrease emissions in Australia by seven percent? Yeah, exactly. And what I maybe didn't mention yet is if you look at the EU in a 2020 study about Bayer in Ackland, the cap and trade system diminished by 3.8% the emissions. However, the thing is with these statistics is it's very hard always to know how to filter them right to get the good the good factor to know is your carbon tax actually affecting your emissions or are they not? And then there are you know, politics involved in reading those statistics. So the 9%, for example, in Australia was contested by Frontier Economics, an economic consulting firm that said that all these numbers were wrong and that it, it actually wasn't that effective at all. So it is debatable. Yeah, it also might be unwise to really directly compare Australia and the EU in two different exactly. time periods. Exactly. But what we do know is that in general, carbon taxes have shown better results. Now, usually that is because it's easier to put a higher goal with a carbon tax than with a cap and trade system, meaning that it's easier to say, we'll set just, you know, 
100 bucks per ton of CO2, and that's that's our goal. We we want change for that. Well, the cap and trade system, you have to see how the market evolves, how the price of carbon is done, and then if the market is is positive to you, then the price is going to be lower because you have more that you have more international competition, etc. So we have all these factors coming in that make a cap and trade system more difficult to actually plan on the price of carbon in the long run. However, what we saw is that what we said with the EU, cap and trade systems have a better record in putting the money that is gained back into climate change. So that can be a factor that is not really accounted for in this previous point. And carbon taxes can be very effective. So we have an example, for example, from British Columbia, the region when, where Vancouver is situated in Canada. They redistributed their uh, revenues from the carbon taxes, a bit similarly to what Gilead did in Australia, to their low and middle income citizen. So that can be a very effective tool as well to put you know two tools in one, two combats in one. You have the climate change combat that's working well, and at the same time, you're able to do something for inequality. And overall, multiple studies have shown that it seems that if your carbon tax is well-defined in advance, meaning if in advance you've said exactly where that money is going to go to, and it's just not, not just a carbon tax to be a carbon tax, then it is actually more effective for the economy and uh, against climate change than the cap and trade system. Yeah. So why does the EU have a cap and trade system and not a carbon tax? Do you know? I, <laughs> I wouldn't dare to guess, David. It's hard to know why, but what we do know is that they now are going to bring a carbon tax in. Okay. So in 2021, the EU announced that um, they want to hit a 55% reduction of their CO2 emission by 2030 okay. compared to the okay. to the 1990 levels, okay. which is way higher than they had originally planned. So that's very good news. And that they actually want to rely on a carbon tax to, uh, to do so. And what would be special about that carbon tax is that it would only apply to importers. So companies that come from abroad and are not subject to the cap and trade system that will remain in place. What Australia had done, if you remember, is that they supported financially their, their home economy where it was needed, which kind of goes against the entire idea of a carbon tax with, if, uh, if you just put that money right back in into some industries. What the EU do is, is wanting to do, though, and what, what is, which is revolutionary and you know, still has to be discussed from international legal point of views and might be problem, problems with uh, international trade, etc. But they want to bring a border-inclusive uh, carbon tax, meaning that if you are a foreign producer that is not subject to a carbon tax in your home state, you're going to have to pay a higher import tax as a carbon tax equivalent. Okay, the EU is really playing no games, taking no prisoners with its uh, goal in reducing carbon, is it? Yeah, it is. And that sounds very promising. Well, we have, there are still, you know, a few points to talk to or talk over. So this carbon tax is supposed to come starting in January 2026 and ideally, you know, being fully implemented in the following years. But we have some points on how is it going to go then for exports, right? So, of course, the, imp the foreign producers, they're going to have to have exactly the same competition problems here. But if you want to export, then you're going to be subject to a cap and trade system as a EU producer. But 
to export, you're going to compete against people who are not subject to a carbon tax. So this still has to be discussed if there's going to be anything to do there. And it really shows that ideally for a carbon tax to work, it would be global, you know, but that's like a lot of subjects we have <laughs> on this podcast. It's just not really possible to implement. Then there's, of course, an interesting question is how is the money going to be, you know, spent? So are we going to keep the same system as we have now? So 70% of it goes into climate action or is it going to be a new system? Maybe it's going to go to low income uh, households because you combat climate change enough. One part, or at least on parts, that could be a, an interesting way this all evolves. A really interesting question is how is going to be how that the effect of this is going to is going to work on developing economies. So they would be the ones suffering probably the most by an increase in their prices and carbon taxes. But we shouldn't forget that in 2015, developing economies were 63% of you know emissions worldwide. It's the classic you know. The classic the Western, theory. yeah, exactly. The the environmental Kuznets curve that's probably not really accurate, but the idea that um, in Europe we already did our emissions, now we are able to reduce them. But in the developing economy, they still have to develop, and so they they are producing a lot of emissions. And if you force them to reduce them, how is that going to affect their economy? So all of these are, questions are still unanswered. So the EU has a lot to work until 2026, but they have some time. So let's see how this evolves. Finally, I still really haven't answered the question, what's better, the cap and trade system or the carbon tax? Uh, I've kind of hinted to the idea that carbon tax, if well implemented, can be better. But how well, like, how can I prove that? So we have a study by Karin Fedor from 2016. That's called Tracking Global Carbon Revenues, a survey of carbon taxes versus cap and trade in the real world. Sounds pretty good, right? And they may be going to have an answer. Truth is they don't because they're real econo economists, meaning that an economist is never going to say he has a definitive answer because otherwise you, you could criticize him. But they say, indeed, that you have more tax revenue with a carbon tax than you have with a cap and trade system. That That's, that's a fact which also means that you have more potential of reinvesting it in a in an intelligent manner. And in practice, taxes have been shown to be more efficient. So they're more economically efficient in their goal. And if you just set them higher, so that means if you improve their price, then they're also going to be more effective in their carbon cap and trade system. And this is a bit the thinking that the EU has, right? In their idea, the cap and, the cap and trade system right now has an estimated price of carbon at $60 per ton, while in the carbon tax is going to be 75 So they are able to increase that in a pretty definitive, clear manner, which makes it more efficient for them and also more easy to implement. Even more so considering that it's only going to be for the imports. And, you know, what Karen Fedor pointed out again is that you can also badly implement the carbon tax by not defining what the money is done and then having problems of corruption, problems of that money going back to industries, etc. But economists in general support the carbon tax. Actually, in 2019, there's been the economist statement on carbon dividends for from 2019. It includes more than 3,500 economists and 28 Nobel Prize winner in economics that all call for carbon tax as the most effect effective economic mean to combat climate change. So here we go. That's kind of the answer we were looking for. 
Then again, saying better, it's like if it can be interpreted in very different ways. What is better? Does better just mean reducing carbon emissions? Which, as you said, finally in the report by economists, they, they did kind of reach a consensus between them that, yes, carbon taxes uh, were more efficient in reducing carbon uh, emissions. And as you said, were more efficient in having revenue. No, you're making a good point. Of course, all this podcast is my subjective opinion based on my reading, so it's not... <laughs> not necessarily, you know, a, a state of fact. That's why also Carl Fedor don't state that carbon taxes are better than carbon trade system, although they kind of imply it. But as of right now, it looks like it's going to be more effective in both economics and environmental means, which is really the, you know, the criteria these things are judged by, because otherwise you just do like Australia and you cut them all. Yeah. So you don't have the problem of, you know, finding out which ones are more effective because you don't really care. <laughs> now the question, of course, is, if we have a generalized carbon trade or, and as I suggest, carbon tax uh, in the world, so meaning that really all economies would participate it and they would implement a pretty high one like the EU does or even Sweden, which has its own uh, and puts the price of, car- of, of carbon at close to 150 euros, uh, per, euros per ton. So even weigh just double what the EU is, is planning on doing, not even doing right now. Is that going to be enough to fight climate change? Because that's kind of the goal of all of this, right? And as you might imagine very well, I'm not going to ask you the question, but <laughs> the answer is uh, no, of course not. Um, it's a start. And it's, as these economists seem to say, the easiest and most effective way to start in the economy just to combat climate change without really having to implement too much uh, different difficult uh, policies or technologies, but uh, there needs to be more. Uh, yet, it definitely seems that there's, there's a very rare consensus, right, amongst economists that putting the context is necessary in earlier and later, and to have it really generalized across all the industries so that then you don't even have to you know, get through the complicated parts of it, which are linked to competition and foreign affairs, etc. Because if everyone has it, then you don't have problems with competition, then it, it goes back through everyone is affected the same way. For anyone who would like to read a bit more about the EU tax, I already mentioned Carl Federer's uh, for the theory, but for the EU tax, you can check out the Boston Consul- Consulting Group article on bcg.com. Uh, which is entitled The Use Carbon Tax Will Redefine Global Value Chains, uh, where you can a bit read on what has been agreed up so far, which of course is now not, not even so much, but just like the basics. And you can read on what effects it could have and why it is in its sense revolutionary, because it, it is cross-border, uh, contrary to most carbon tax so far that have been national. Well, Damien, as for me, I will definitely be reading more about that. I find it heavily interested. I thank you for introducing me to this topic, which uh, I should have done, uh, I should have been more knowledgeable about. It's a topic, uh, it's really important nowadays for us, for our future, for the future of the earth. And for sure, I'll be using your resources. Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, so this is already the second I want to know I've done on environmental subjects. And maybe our listeners are like, oh, this dude, he's an environmentalist, he's annoying <laughs> me, I don't want to hear about that. But truth is, it's not even that, it's not even the case, you know, I'm not even like, 
specifically just looking at environmental economics, green economics, uh, carbon taxes and stuff, etc. It's just that it is such a overly prevalent subject that we just don't know much about if we go into the details of it, that it was kind of mandatory for me to, to have a deeper look into it. And this seems like it's crazy to see how you have, you know, this enormous consensus of economists, 3,500 of them, more than 3,500 of them, you know, more, a lot of Nobel Prize winners. They all agree that carbon taxes are so good, but there really doesn't seem to be that many studies on their effectiveness that goes beyond just, you know, looking at did they increase emissions or not. And then even those studies are heavily debated because everyone's like, no, you use the methodology that doesn't make sense, etc. So it's crazy to see that you have such a big field like economics that just doesn't really care about what, how exactly do we see the effects of these different taxes and capital trade systems. And I mean, this could be like, if anyone out there is looking for a PhD subject in environmental economics, like you you can jump on this, like this car and Fedor article is like a few pages, like you could write a book on this within seconds. It's just like compare these different subjects and no one has done it. So it's kind of crazy to see like how, I mean, you, you said you're interested in it and you're not knowledgeable. I was in the same case and it seems like a lot of people are in the same case, right? So so this just shows that we are a bit in a, in a weird situation where in economics we're just interested more in seeing how the price of a car is is effect is is put than uh, how we could save our how to save our planet, right? Well, you heard it here, folks. If you're still looking for your PhD thesis, you now have it. <laughs> Go write about this, save our planet, and you heard it here first from Damien himself. That's right. Thank you for listening again. For anyone who hasn't yet. Go check out also the episodes from two times ago on Nobel Prize that we just touched on very slightly today, which was made by on the Nobel Prize 2021 by, by Joe. It was an awesome episode. And otherwise, we're very, very happy to have you with us today for a very long, I want to know, way too long, to be honest. <laughs> this was Damien. This was Is the Economy Stupid? Thank you and goodbye.